Hello, this is Brian Croft. I'm the senior pastor of Auburndale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm also the founder of Practical Shepherding. A few years ago, I started a blog about the daily work of a pastor, and that blog has grown into the various ministries of Practical Shepherding. We want to come alongside pastors who are laboring in the trenches of pastoral ministry to encourage and to equip them. And that's why we started this podcast, Trench Talk. So we hope this podcast encourages you and your church as we continue our conversation about the pastor's work. To find out more about Practical Shepherding, visit our website at practicalshepherding.com or you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Welcome to Trench Talk. This is a podcast by pastors and for pastors. I'm your host, Brian Croft. I'm the founder of Practical Shepherding, and I'm sitting here with my good friend, Kyle McClellan. Uh, This is part two of a podcast that I started with Kyle, and we we spent a good bit talking about his just life and calling the ministry and the different ministry positions and roles that he's played, his education, and that was an important background to set as I want to spend the time talking about the book that I asked Kyle to write a couple of years ago in regard to all the lessons that he learned as he went through some of those really difficult church situations. And so, Kyle, thanks again for joining us to talk about these things. Yeah, you're welcome. It's, it's always fun to talk about the ways in which I screwed up ministry and, uh, you know, got fired and resigned and all sorts of good things. Yeah, so we thought this would be a, an enjoyable podcast. It's, Everybody it's, listen you know, to for a Monday morning, it's a, it's a really pleasant topic. I, you know, I, it's a shame. I, I should have scheduled a colonoscopy to go along with it because it would have been equally pleasant. Just kind of crank it out all in one day. Let's right? just get it all done in one, in one sitting. Okay, so two years ago, you come into town and you and I are hanging out in my office chatting and I've known you for 15 years and you are talking me through not just all those years of, that you articulated in the previous podcast episode of, of a churches that you went to and that didn't go well and you ended up leaving in a short amount of time. Uh, very disenchanted with the churches and how they ran and the way that you felt they even treated you. And you're telling me all this, and then you're sharing with me, as we're sitting in my office, uh, all the ways the Lord started to teach you, looking right. back on those situations, and realizing that it wasn't just about the churches being screwed up, though, in many cases, that's, that is what's going on, but that this actually had something to do with you, too. And you were sharing about these things and you're articulating the lessons the Lord's teaching you. I'm obviously seeing that you're a, a more broken, humble man as we're sitting there talking about these things, as you are owning, in a sense, the things that that you had done to create the problem, too, not just the church, which certainly did its part, too. And I was just struck by, I don't think I knew a story where someone served in these churches like that, went through all these things, and is enough of a glut for punishment that you actually still wanted to be a pastor. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> I mean, I realized pretty early on, and I think some of it had to do with, you know, if you have a background in athletics, then, you know, the old saying is, it's never as good as you think it is, and it was never as bad as you thought it was. Right. And so it really does teach you to sort of step back and take an objective look at what's going on. And when we first planted Grace, I was, I was moonlighting I was also the defensive line coach at a, a university here, here in town. And so I was back in that mode of sort of looking at game film, thinking sort of objectively about, you know, how did, how did a kid really do on this play? 
No, we can see the end result, and maybe they made the tackle, but they sort of went in a roundabout way. They didn't, they didn't do it particularly right. And I think that's true in ministry. I mean, we can do everything right and not go well. We never do everything right. And so there's always going to be a sense in which we need to be learning and we need to be open to receiving critique, which is different from criticism. Mm -hmm. We need to be open to being critiqued. We need to be open to receiving correction. And we need to be open to always sort of thinking carefully and prayerfully and humbly about what it is that we're doing and why, why we're doing it. We, we haven't yet arrived, and we won't, we won't arrive. And so I remember it, part of the conversation was in, in the, the service, what do you guys call your Sunday night? Service review. Your service review. So you had preached that right. morning for us. Yeah. Right, you, you were kind and, and allowed us to do that. And so we were in the service review, and we were talking about those, those kinds of things. And then the questions you started to ask weren't even really sermon questions. Because I had preached and we had talked about that and talked about the service. But it was more, hey, kind of help these guys understand sort of what's what's going on. And that had been, I mean, I had done some of that already. That was part of the healing process for me. That was part of working at Amazon and having lots of time on my hands and lots of time to think. And, and that older man at Tate's Creek. Right, right, yeah. And, and Sartell uh, was helpful in that way. And it was, it was just part of the process the Lord used so that I could, I think for lack of a better term, so that I could just sort of stay in ministry and not continue to, 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 make, a, to make a mess. Um, I think I say in the book, one of my favorite Wendell Berry characters is a guy named Burley Coulter. And Burley always famously says, I never learned nothing until I had to. Mm -hmm. And I could look at that and go, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm Burley Coulter. I, I am that guy. And I finally realized that, okay, age 40, I might need to start sort of figuring some of this out. Mm -hmm. And if these things are helpful to younger guys, then then that that's, that's great. You pointed out yesterday in, in talking to our church, we really do think when we come out of seminary, man, I'm going to preach the word, and I'm going to care for these people, and they're going to love me. And it's going to be awesome. And then when it isn't, either because of our sin and fallenness or because of their sin and fallenness, or sometimes it's because the guy who preceded you was had his own failings and had his own sin, and it impacted the church in ways that you're not even fully aware of because they're not even fully aware of what's going on. Yeah. And so now you've got to try to navigate all those things. And unfortunately... You can just end up getting your brain speed in, and I, I got I got to be really good. I mean, if nothing else, man, I, I can take a punch, brother. I can I can take a beating. I, I, I figured that out. Yeah. So uh, I remember when we were so when my interns and the guys who served you left. I just remember being so struck by how differently you talked about these situations now, and that's where our conversation started going. We sat there and talking. I. I convinced you, uh, I was so struck by all the Lord had done in your life as you were sharing that, you know, I asked you to, sh to write a couple articles mm -hmm. right, about this. And we posted the articles after you wrote them. You, you agreed to it. I mean, you know, I, I appreciated your humility. I mean, I don't know too many guys who will be willing to just write about, you know, how they, how they messed up. And so uh, I appreciated your willingness just to do that for the sake of others. And the article just kind of exploded 
on private surfing website. And so we realized we'd hit a nerve with this. And so that's when I asked you uh, to write your first to write your uh, first book. And again, you uh, graciously agreed to write a book that probably wasn't going to be real pleasant to write, no. but one you you were trusting would be a, a benefit like those articles were. Yeah. No, it wasn't pleasant to write. And I realized about halfway through it, I came home, you know, I'd basically write on my day off. And I would come home on Friday, the day was supposed to be off, I'd come home and just feel like I, I'd just been, you know, just run through the ringer. And finally I came home and Amy and I were talking in the kitchen and she's like, okay, you know, this is supposed to be your day off. Uh, we, we, we'd like, you know, we want happy dad. We don't want sort of, you know, chronic melancholy, you know, Eeyore dad, which is sort of what we're getting here. And, and finally, I just realized, you know, babe, I think what's going on here is I really want, I, I just realized it's in the process of writing. I really wanted somebody from one of those churches, and I had a couple people in mind in particular. I really wanted just somebody to call and say, you know what, Pastor? We're sorry. We, you made mistakes, but boy, we just, we, we did not treat you as Christians ought to treat one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's, we don't even have to church it up and say this isn't how churches should treat pastors and try to be really, really sort of highly spiritual. But no, we didn't treat you like Christians are supposed to treat one another. When I realized that that wasn't coming, that I was never going to get that. Then it was sort of like, okay, Lord, you, you just, you got to take this and you got to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And this is, I'm, I'm not, you know, until either until I die or Jesus comes again, I'm not going to really get any closure on this. And I want to affirm too, having known you through some of those situations, that though you're, you're now very willing to talk about the things that, um, the mistakes that you made. Um, these churches, I just want to acknowledge that in this podcast, that, that they certainly played their part. That, oh, yeah. That was, that was true. You were certainly treated in ways that were not Christian-like. And so there was certainly, there was certainly fall on both sides. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've both had the experience of having deacons drive by because they want to know if you're in the office. Yeah. And at the same time, the guys that say you're in the office too much... Uh, or, or they'll say, well, you're not in the office enough, but you don't visit enough, or you visit... Yeah. I remember a deacon one time saying he didn't think that if Billy Graham was these folks' pastor, they'd be, they'd be happy with him, and it's, and it's true. Hmm. I, I think what I, the other thing that I realized is, and, and it, you know, I was heavily influenced by Haddon Robinson and kind of the big idea in preaching. And I would say sort of the big idea of the book is it's one thing to have the credentials of a gospel minister. I mean, it's a bigger deal in the PCA maybe than it is in the SBC. Um, it's another thing to sort of have worked hard to develop the competencies that a minister needs. You know, can you um, can you read the text? I mean, I think of the, that wonderful little book why Johnny can't preach, and the thumbnail sketch of why Johnny can't preach is because Johnny can't really read a book. And if you can't read a book, it's kind of hard to tell people what the book is about. And so there are competencies that ministers need to work hard and develop. And thankfully, I went to places that, um, in spite of myself at times, helped me develop those competencies. But even though you have the credentials, even though you have the competencies, 
uh, the character of a minister is an entirely different thing. Mm -hmm. And I would sort of gloss over, you know, when, when Paul gives the list of requirements for elders and the pastorals, I would glom on to apt to teach. Brother, I can do that. Yeah. But the, uh, you know, the not, not easily angered, not quarrelsome. Mm. Mm -hmm. I just sort of blew over those yeah. with the understanding that, well, hey, you know what? I'm apt to teach. That's the big one. Everything else will happen. And, and thankfully, there have been books that have come out recently, uh, thinking predominantly of Paul Tripp's uh, wonderful little book, um, A Dangerous Calling. Yeah, in which he just makes the, 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 the point, look, the soul care of the minister is a really key, really crucial thing. And if you're not developing, if, uh, if, if you're not blameless and above reproach, that doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you do have, there is a particular level of character that you have as a Christian minister. If you don't have that, then you're going to make a mess of your ministry. You're going to make a mess of your marriage. You're going to make a mess of whatever kind of ministerial responsibilities you've been given. And and you just can't do it. So we have, so in the book, Mia Culpa, uh, appropriately named, you just try to highlight. My was, bad. You're, you're my, my bad. bad. It's more highfalutin than my bad. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, but you've got lessons. The book is different lessons that you learn from all those hard church situations. And I have to say, my, my interns have to read all the practice shepherding books. And my last batch of interns, once this book was released, uh, all came back at the end and said that this was their favorite out of all of them. Now, that's not supposed to be a knock on any of my books or any of the other well, Bible books, it's, but simply to highlight I think, that you strike a nerve, and not just the things you're talking about, but the way you talk about them. So, will you maybe highlight a couple of the lessons that you write about in this book that stick out to you on that you think are really important for young guys? Yeah, well, let me just say, I, I think part of that, Brian, is the way that, the reason I like this, we all, we all like to stop and look at the, the wreck on the side of the road. Right. You know, I mean, we just all, we're all drawn to looking at the, mm -hmm. the gruesome wreck, and so the book is uh, basically a word picture of this gruesome, mm -hmm. the gruesome wreck. Yeah, I, I think, um, one of the primary lessons, I think the first one is this, you, your first ministry is your family. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny Aiken, who we've, we've, been, we've been referring to in, in fond terms this morning, mm -hmm. as we kind of remember some, some of our favorite Danny stories, uh, Danny used to say, you know, you can resign as being the pastor, you can't resign as being your wife's husband, and you can't resign as being your kid's dad. Mm -hmm. And you really do have to say, okay, this isn't just something that by default I am, this is my first area of ministry. This is the priority ministry-wise. And I had never really thought about, because I was just always sort of stunned that this, this really bright, uh, beautiful, godly woman agreed to marry me. I had never really thought in terms of, okay, I need to be really intentional about how I'm caring for and loving and ministering to her. Because I was just always walking around going, dude, I hit the lottery. Are you kidding me? My wife looks like Ashley Judd. I look like 40 miles of bad road. <laughs> I mean, more, more often, I know people look at us and they're like, how, What's did, up? what, was, was she, what was going on? I mean, I don't understand. 
So I had never really thought, and, and again, and we've, we, we talked about this some this weekend, and, and uh, my friend Chris Robbins is right, the ministry tends to call insecure narcissists. That's who we are. Yeah. And I never thought, I always thought in terms of, isn't it awesome, I got this smoking hot trophy wife, to quote that great philosopher Ricky Bobby. But I never thought in terms of, well, what does Amy, how can I serve her? How can I minister to her? How how can I love her as Christ loved the church? And that being first, even before right. you minister to your church. Right. This isn't, so this isn't something that I do with my leftovers. Mm-hmm. This is the first priority. This is the first responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could tell you, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like I rock at that now. I'm awesome at that. No, I'm better. Uh, but I'm, I'm a work in progress. I mean, it's, it's, and, and my wife is gracious. She bestows grace on me. And, but the good news is now we're on the same team. And we understand, we, we, we now, after 20 years of marriage, we know one another's strengths, we know one another's weaknesses, and, and we love one another um, through and in spite of, in spite of those things. So I think that was the first one. Okay. Was and I think it's probably the most important one is well your family has to be ministering to your family. Not in a not in this and not even in the okay, now is the time in the day in which I minister to my family. But in the sense of you're present and you are emotionally and intellectually available to the people in your household. Mm-hmm. And you're not, uh, you know, you're not, you don't get home, throw your bag down, eat your dinner, tuck people in, and go do more work. Yeah. But that you are really engaging in the life and in the well-being of the people who are in your house. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think is, I think if a minister does nothing else, um, that's that's the first thing that they that they need to be about. Yeah. I think I think the other one really is the importance of place. I mean, we've you've sort of seen that this weekend in, in sort of an interesting way as it relates to your family. Um, place really is very important in how we bring the gospel to bear in a particular place, but we don't allow the place to set the agenda. It's something I, I never I never understood. I because I'd always grown up in a rural Nebraska. When, when, when I went to Indiana, that was that was strange. But, you know, everybody, nobody was from there. Everybody was from somewhere else. Mm. And so everybody was in the same kind of boat. And when I went to Louisville, that was culture shock. And so when I started pastoring, I did so always thinking, this place is really weird. Like, they, they use words like follard. And they think basketball's a sport. And there's just... There's just you have since changed. Of I have since changed, yes. I've... I've okay. Again, 20 years, I've, I figured it out. But I, I went into all this thinking, well, that's because the place is weird. Not because I'm from a particular place and it shaped me in a particular way, but because the place is weird. And again, just working for T4 showed me the importance of place. It showed me the importance of sort of thinking tribally. Again, not because all of the standards and norms of the tribe just mean that I just accept them as they are and the tribe sets the agenda. The gospel always sets the agenda. Yeah. But I do have to do the hard work of thinking about how am I going to bring the gospel to bear in a way that's intelligible to that place, to that tribe. And so reading Wendell Berry 
was was hugely important and hugely significant for me. And and so those are the two. Those those are the two I think off, at, at least <laughs> uh, since the book. And, and since I've sort of been living with it and thinking through it a little bit, and just feedback from friends of mine, I think those are the two really important ones. Yeah, that's good. And there, there are other, I mean, the, <clears throat> one of my uh, favorite lessons is that lesson four, that Jesus wants me to squat, bench, and deadlift. Yeah. So um, can you explain why does Jesus, I mean, clearly wants you, he doesn't want, he wants me to do other things. Yeah, he wants, he doesn't want me to squat. He wants you to, he wants you to have nunchuck skills. That's right. So, so explain why Jesus in particular wants you to squat, bench, and deadlift. Yeah, there's, there is a, one of the unique things about ministry is that it's never done. Right? I don't meet my quota of producing widgets and then go home and not think about it. There is this never ending, always ongoing element to ministry. And it creates a kind of tension in our lives that we have to find an outlet for. Unfortunately, because so much of the church has bought into a sort of business model in that I know that I'm successful. And as guys, we all want to be successful, right? That's how we keep score. And we measure success in terms of how many people are coming, how big the budget is. You know, we, we want the measurables to, to be able to sort of keep score when really, I think, the more faithful we are in ministry, I think the less sort of measurables there are. Eugene Peterson talks about the Jesus way. And I'm, I'm not sure you can really quantify the Jesus way. Uh, I think there are things that we can point to, things that we can look at, but just because your church has 25,000 people in it doesn't mean you're being a really faithful um, gospel minister. So... Because we have this inherent need to compete, because we're dudes, we have to find an outlet for it, and we have to. And, and health is a is a is a big piece. We we got to release some stress. We got to release some tension. We need to be healthy. You know, Machine famously said, "The Lord gave me a horse, meaning his body, and he gave me the gospel." Mm. And I rode the horse in the ground, and now I can't preach the gospel anymore because he died when he was like thirty three or thirty, or mm. he died just tragically young. And so I realized, okay, I need to be a little more healthy. I need to find a way to release some stress. And I just need a venue I can compete. My dad has a client who's a, a four-time world powerlifting champion. He's 64 years old. And, and the guy could probably squat this building. And, and I always like to lift. I always find lifting very cathartic. And so I compete as an amateur drug-free powerlifter. And... So we, we, I literally squat, bench, and deadlift, mm. and it's been hugely cathartic. It has allowed me, I mean, Jesus and I get more worked out on heavy squat day than just about any other time I can think of. Well, you told me before that, and it says Jesus wants you to do squat, bench, and deadlift because you were bringing that competitive into yeah. churches. Yeah, and I think that's, that's the problem is, you know, if we're keeping score... I mean, I, I think in some sense, you know, to sort of uh, revise Dante's Inferno, I think hell's going to be a room full of pastors talking about how many people come to their church and how big their budget is. Because mm-hmm. half the time you're lying, mm-hmm. right? Because you're keeping score. Right. And you want to compete. And you want people to know that you're successful. Mm-hmm. And you want that kind of affirmation. And you want that affirmation from your peers. And so the way we think we get affirmation from our peers is, 
Well, I took a church of 400 and now it's 1,400. Or I took a church of 4,000 and now it's 20,000. Mm-hmm. Or I was at a church of 250, but I got hired by a church of 2,000 because I'm a really gifted, relevant communicator. Mm-hmm. And that's why they hired me. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, I think those things make Jesus sad. Mm-hmm. I think soccer and keeping score ministry make Jesus really sad. I think those things... And, and vegetarian. Why don't you just go ahead and throw running? <laughs> Since Jesus wants me to run, whether I want to do that. Yeah, and this, so and this, one of the things in the book is so in our in our presbytery, we have a guy in our presbytery who's like twenty some odd marathons. Yeah, and I met him this weekend. Didn't yeah, you? okay. Really sweet, dear brother. He's about as big around as my pinky. Uh, great guy. And he will tell you why does he run? He runs for his own mental and physical health. Yeah. It's, it's, again, he can clear his mind. It's time in which he and Jesus work stuff out. It keeps him healthy. Yeah. He runs with his kids, yep. which I think is lunacy, but he runs with his kids. Now, if my kid wanted to run, I'd like ride my bike behind them yeah. or in the car and sort of follow them along in, in that way. Uh, but we, we, you, have to fi- you have to find your thing. Yeah. I, and there are a lot of people who think putting 500 pounds on your back, squatting the parallel and standing back up. Is, is insanity. Okay, I get it. Your thing doesn't have to be my thing. Right. But I do think Jesus wants you to have a thing. Mm. I do think there needs to be a way physically in which you're sweating, you're competing, and it's it's in some way, shape, or form cathartic for you. If in nothing else, when I go into the gym and it's squat day, I know that I have this many sets and this many reps and if I add it up, I'm going to lift this much weight by the end of the workout. And so I know I've got two sets of three at 275. I have three sets of three at 315. I got a double at 365. I got a double at 405. I got a single at 455. I got a single at 475. I check all of them off because that's the only thing in my life that I can check it off and it's done. It's the same reason I have to cut my grass. Yeah, same here. Right? A lot of pastors like to mow their own yard because I start, I end, and I can actually see what I've done. Yeah. And, and I think evangelical culture as a whole is so ate up with this competition piece mm-hmm. that even in the academy, yeah. guys are out trying to make a name for themselves, commenting on or writing articles they got no business commenting on or writing about. But they're competing. It's right? They're, they're trying to make a name for themselves. And so they're blogging, they're writing, they're basically throwing stuff up against the wall and whatever sticks in the sense of, well, this got this many Twitter hits, this got this many blog post hits, this got retweeted or it's trending in this way. And what they're really doing is they're competing. Yeah. They're creating a name for themselves and they're competing. But again, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the Jesus way. I think, again, that makes Jesus really sad. When we embrace that model of, look, let's not pretend we don't compete, because we do. And it's a good thing. It means our families have clothes on their backs, there's food on the table, there's a roof over their head. It's great that men compete. But like all the good gifts that God has given us, because we're sons of Adam, and because, as the hymn says, we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, we take that instinct of competition, and we make it something really ugly, and it turns into an idol, and whether we know it or not, we have this kind of unresolved tension in our lives. 
and we're dealing with it in a really unhelpful, really unhealthy way. And so, yeah, Jesus wants me to squat bench and deadlift because I'm more patient. Uh, I'm kinder, which is sort of stunning. Um, I'm, I'm, to the extent that I'm thoughtful, I'm more thoughtful because of these things. I need the endorphins. I need the exercise. I just need the sweat. So if you're a pastor listening to this, I hope you hear the, the stress that both of us are, are emphasizing about needing something to be able to release that stress. Um, and to even look for the ways that you show up competing in your own ministry and, and make ways maybe you think is just ambitious when it really is this competitive drive a lot of men have in particular that can be harmful when you bring it to your, to your ministries. Yeah, I mean, we, listen, we, we have this, we, we are like, we're like the folks in Babel, right? We want to make a name for ourselves. Yeah. We want our renown to be known. And... Part of that is just we're, we're men. That's what we do. Yeah. We we want to compete. We want to strive. We want to provide. And those are all those are all really good things. I to, we, we talked about Danny Lincoln earlier. I remember once in a in a preaching class, a guy was preaching a really good sermon. But this was a guy who was was clearly really overweight. I mean, not like you and I with you know a little little punch going, a little, little middle aged. Still some shoulders though. There you go. Yeah. yeah. No, this guy was. As they would say in the South, he was sloppy fat. Mm-hmm. And all through the sermon, uh, the, the buttons towards the bottom of his shirt were open, and he wasn't wearing a t-shirt or an undershirt. And so you, you have this large, like, coffee cup-sized belly button sort of staring at you through the whole sermon. And the guy gets done, and Danny's like, hey, let me tell you something. That was a good sermon, I think. But I, I couldn't hear a word. Do you know why? All I could see was your big fat belly sitting next to me. The whole time. And Danny Aiken's very subtle. Danny's so subtle. And so, so, so affirming in that. But there are a lot of guys, right? There are a lot of guys in ministry who, physically, we're we're just a rat. And again, you don't have to lift. Maybe, you know, maybe you're going to do the couch to 5K thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're going to go play racquetball. Maybe you're going to start walking to work or riding your bike to work. I don't care. Yeah. But find something you need to plan and you can measure at the end of the day. It's something you can compete in. So I want to wrap up with a, just a couple of bullet points, okay? So shotgun, shotgun round as we wrap things up. I've learned a lot from you about preaching, and I know that you have thought through a lot of really good things in regard to, to preaching. In fact, the irony of that, you thinking the first book you would probably write would be on preaching, and this is a bit of a deviation from that, So, but the Lord's timing, I'm sure, is right. So, But I do appreciate how you're very thoughtful about preaching and what you even taught me and other guys in coming to you. Can you kind of just rattle off just just a top five preaching books? Yeah. Because I appreciate you knowing about some preaching books that I don't think are widely publicized, but you feel are some of the strongest. Just shot in those five books. Right. right. So John Piper, the Founders Conference, late nineties, encouraged seminarians to pick an area, an academic area, that they really like in seminary, and they would stay up to date on that. So maybe it was New Testament. Maybe you can't stay up on everything you learn in seminary. Pick one area to read on continually, and, and preaching was my area. Um, I, I preaching is my craft. Your demon is in my demon is in preaching, right? Demons in preaching. So preaching is what I think about when I'm not preaching and not lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, preaching is, is yeah. So that's my craft. That's what I think about. It's what I give my attention to. It's what I read when I have free time to read whatever I want to read. So if I was going to teach a preaching class tomorrow. The five books I would have guys read 
Um, I would have them read a book called Saving Lucas um, by Gary Millar, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Um, fantastic. It's a Matthias Media book. Fantastic little book. Okay. Um, Alec Matera wrote a book by Christian Focus. It's called Preaching? Question mark. Okay. Simple teaching about simple preaching. It's a genius. Uh, Matera is a little bit like J.I. Packer. He can take things, sort of condense them down, state them in such a way that you go, that's really simple. Why didn't I think of that? That would be the second one. Um, the third book um, would be a book by a lady named Peggy Newman. She was a speechwriter for, uh, she was a speechwriter for Bush the Elder for Ronald Reagan. But Peggy Newman's book, Simply Speaking, um, you know, there should be a beginning, there should be a middle, there should be an end. There, there are, I think a lot of guys have become better preachers just by joining Toastmasters mm-hmm. and becoming and, and learning about the craft of public speaking. Um, the fourth book is by David Helm, a little crossway book in the Nine Mark series called Expository Preaching. It's a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, is, it is the best short little book on preaching I think I've ever seen. And then the fifth one, and it deals more with how uh, what a friend of mine calls, Doug Webster calls, staying in the story. Michael Lawrence has this really helpful book, Biblical Theology and Life of the Church. And it just reminds us that um, I can preach a text, but not really preach the Bible. Mm. So if I'm not connecting the text to the redemptive storyline of the Bible, I haven't really preached. Mm. I may have talked about, and we can do it in the New Testament, I may have talked about Acts 19, but I haven't necessarily done the work of connecting that to what's come before and what comes after. Mm. And so, Michael, and Michael, Michael's a very gifted preacher, uh, dear brother, mm. and has really done the church a, a great service. So those five, they're very different, they deal with some different things, three of them are yeah. nuts and bolts. One's just purely on, on speaking, um, and then the other one is, is on kind of this, this idea of biblical theology and how it serves the task of preaching. And so those are the ones I would, off the top of my, oh, those would be my top five. That's good. Teaching a class, those would be the five that I have to read. Yeah, and I think most of those, I don't, I, I, I assume, right, I don't see them in wide circulation among the books that are being recommended. So, no. but, but those, are, those books that Kyle has recommended and others um, are, everybody should check those out. They're really, um, they're really helpful in the way that um, the, Kyle is specifically recommending them because they do unique things that some of the other preaching books are not addressing. Um, and especially the Helm book in the Nine Mark series, if, if you're not able, if you've heard of Simeon Trust and you haven't been able to be a part of the workshop that Kyle is also uh, directly involved with, uh, the Helm book is kind of can be an introduction to some of the things that the wonderful things that Simeon Trust is doing to help us help us preach better. Kyle, last question as we wrap up. Um, you're working on a demon at Beeson. Yes. And, you know, you, you would like to be able to write some more, and you obviously established that you can write well and think well through these things. That's a good thing about having your first book published. Um, what are you, what are you kind of thinking about what you would like to write next? Well, my, my, my project, my dissertation is on the book Ruth, and it's actually taking some of the city and trust concepts, this idea of the melodic line, so every book has a sort of melody that runs through it. And the task of preaching, as we've said, which Michael's book really helpfully points out, is I have to find the melodic line of the book, figure out how that fits in within that particular testament, 
and then figure out how that fits in with the sort of redemptive storyline of the whole Bible. Mm. And so the project is uh, sort of using that construct of melodic line. We've tweaked it a little bit. Mm. Uh, there's more than one sort of melody going on in the book of Ruth. So it's, it's sort of an oratorio for guys that have a musical background. Um, so there's there are multiple melodies sort of going on that make this kind of beautiful symphony in the book of Ruth. And so the project will be six sermons, uh, five or six sermons in the book of Ruth. And and I hope um, you know those five or six sermons will probably then get published, uh, or hopefully will get published um, in. In, in a way that would be similar to the preaching the word series, yeah. right? These are these are uh, expositional commentaries on what's going on in the, in the text. Um, and I don't know. I don't. I don't think I have the chops to write it. But I think one of the really interesting discussions going on right now in in preaching in general is: should our preaching, particularly from the Old Testament, should be Christocentric or should it be Christotelic? And I fall in the Christotelic camp. And one of my, uh, in fact, my, my doctoral supervisor at Beeson, a man named Mark Jean-Lyat, Mark would put it this way, oh, wait, so we're saying that in the Bible, unless we're specifically talking about the second person of the Trinity, there's nothing really redemptive going on. That the God who is one and three and three and one, the God the Father revealing himself to us, in a gracious way, there's nothing redemptive about that until Jesus comes along. You're saying that God, the whole storyline is The redemptive. whole story is redemptive. Right. And that Jesus then is the goal of that redemption. Now, he's not always necessarily the center, but he is the goal. When you say that helps people not jump so quickly to Jesus when they're preaching the Old Testament. Right, right. So, and the other thing it deals with is, there's more going on in the text often than simply justification by grace through faith. There's more going on there than how Jesus is my personal Savior. When you look at, for example, the first two chapters of the book of Ruth, this is just life in a fallen world. I mean, we're dealing with a drought, we're dealing with unexpected death, we're dealing with in-laws we wouldn't really have chosen. And yet God redeems that. And the challenge is we can't read the first, we can't necessarily read the first two chapters of the book of Ruth and go, you know, Naomi's great need, the following condition focus of Ruth 1, is Naomi needs to repent of her sin and believe in Jesus Christ for her salvation. You can't read the text that way. Yeah. And it's, it's doing a great disservice to this, this be, not just this beautiful story in the book of Ruth, but in terms of what's going on in the Bible as a whole. No, God has made provision for this kind of fallenness that we encounter in the book of Ruth. Yes, ultimately it gets us to Jesus, but it's not Christocentric, it's Christotelic. God's people need a king. God's people need a kinsman redeemer. But God has provided through all, God has already provided those things, by the way, in the law. And it shows up in the way that the city of Bethlehem responds. To Ruth, it shows up. The promise of Genesis 12:3 shows up in the beautiful confession that Ruth makes to Naomi, using covenant language. Yes, the story of Ruth. That story, even just in itself, is redemptive, even before the kinsman redeemer ever shows up. Right. Right. And and, and yes, can can I get to Jesus from kinsman redeemer? If you can't stop preaching, sure. Just stop. Mm -hmm. Just don't. Just 
But, Shut it down. But there is redemptive qualities happening in that whole There's story. Tremendous so, yeah. redemptive qualities yeah. happening. And, and then the genealogy at the end. I mean, certainly we go from that genealogy to Matthew one. And again, if you can't get to Jesus from here, yeah. just just please, just stop. Well, brother, I know we can we can sit and chat for hours, but uh, I want to wrap this up. Thank you for taking time to talk with us. Uh, I just want, I'm grateful for your friendship, and, and the Lord has encouraged me as I've watched the Lord work in your life. And the partnership that you've made with Practical Shepherding, I'm grateful for that and the work you're doing with us. And this has been very, uh, very helpful. So thank you for what you're doing and continue to press on, brother. Can I take a minute and pray for you in your ministry? Please, let's do it. Lord, thank you for Kyle and the way you have been at work in his life and the way it's showing up over the course of many years, not just a couple of years. And so, Lord, any pastor that's listening to this podcast, we, we pray that you would encourage them that they are a work in progress just as we are and that you are not done with them and help them to, to be pre- patient and press on in their ministry knowing you're working them, in them and in their ministry bless Kyle and, and Grace Church here in Fremont, Nebraska and his ministry here now, Lord bless him in any writing that he would do in the future and Lord we pray you would use this book in particular to help young men to even avoid some of the mistakes that Kyle writes about in the book that you would use Kyle's uh, lessons that he has learned and speak wisdom into these men as they go out into their first pastures and help them use this book to allow them to be fruitful and faithful. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Trench Talk. We'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you might have for us. So to get in touch with us, you can email us brian at practicalshepherding.com where you can contact us through Facebook or Twitter. You can find out more about Practical Shepherding at our website. At the website you can find our blog and you can also find information about articles and books that we've published. You can also find out information about our regional workshops where we engage pastors face to face to equip them for the trench work of ministry. Until next time, may the God of peace, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you as you labor in the trenches of pastoral ministry.